Hello, and a very warm welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. This program is about helping you thrive in some of the most challenging coaching situations. Our aim is to support you in bringing your coaching to the next level, whether you're new to coaching or you're already an expert professional. If you're a coach, leader, entrepreneur, leadership development professional, or a human resource manager, this show is for you. Welcome to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Katrina Bruce, and today I have the pleasure of interviewing Matthew Kimberly. Matthew, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Katrina. Very happy to be here. Well, Matthew, tell me a little bit about yourself. So my name is Matthew Kimberly. I live in Malta in the south of Europe with my Maltese wife and half Maltese children. And I'm, of course, from the UK originally. I am the head of the Book Yourself Solid School of Coach Training, where we train marketing coaches in our proprietary Book Yourself Solid business building methodology. And we also help hundreds and thousands of small business owners get more clients, even if they hate marketing and selling. I am the creator of the School for Selling. I'm the author of How to Get a Grip. And my latest project has been to identify the 16 principles of professional persuasion and codify those to help salespeople become markedly better salespeople by making small tweaks to their sales process. Interesting. I've seen you as a public speaker, so of course I know you're extremely good. Well, that's very kind of you. And also very entertaining. Well, thank you very much. I do try. I think if you can't educate people, you can at least entertain them and they won't hate you. Yes, that's true. But you did both. <laughs> so you say you feel strongly about businesses being about people and not about stakeholders. So can you explain that a little bit? Yeah, what that is, uh, Katrina, it's really a push against the corporatization of professionalism. The idea that the minute we become professional, i.e. You know, doing something as a profession, we have to stop being ourselves. We have to turn into these corporate drones who, instead of talking about people, talk about stakeholders. Instead of talking about things to do, talk about roadmaps. Instead of talking about brainstorming, think uh, talk about blue skying. It's the idea that you can't send an email to a professional contact and begin it with the words, yo, it's the idea that we have to adopt a different code, uh, which is uncomfortable for many people when we interact with professional colleagues or, or prospects. I see a vast majority of people who have problems selling in the corporate world and selling to corporates have problems because they can't get over the idea that they have to treat their prospect with kid gloves. The prospect or their, or their counterparty or the person they're selling to or pitching to is put on a pedestal. And because they're on a pedestal, it's very difficult to engage with them as a human being. We seem to see them as some kind of royalty. So I say, listen, business is all about people. They're not necessarily, you know, you can call them stakeholders. It really doesn't matter. But these are other people. And the deeper that you can connect with people, even and especially, I would say, in a B2B environment, the more successful you will be. And critically and crucially, the more fun you will have, which will lead to you being more successful. So what you say is really to see them as people, not put them on a pedestal and connect with them. Absolutely right. So what are, are some other 
hurdles for leaders to sell? I think there's always been an issue with getting into the sales conversation in the first place. So the reason that we don't like to sell is not because we're afraid of rejection, even though there's a part of that. You know, it, I've made enough cold calls in my life to know that being told to get lost multiple times a morning can have a, an effect on your self-esteem. It's not about being afraid of rejection entirely. It's definitely not being afraid of success, which I've heard a number of times. You know, people say, you're afraid of success. And that's nonsense. You know, if, if anybody were handed success on a silver platter, they'd take it. We tend to be perhaps afraid of the hard work that goes towards getting what we want. I think the problem is for leaders, for non-leaders, for any salesperson, it's changing the nature of the relationship. So even though we walk into it, but there are two types of relationship, right? There is, there's professional and there's personal. Professional relationship, particularly one where there's a vendor and a buyer involved, tends to be slightly combative from the beginning. So if I go into a meeting where we both know that we're going to cut a deal, one of us is going to be more excited by it than another. If I walk into a meeting with the intention of selling you something, one of us is going to be more excited than the other normally. If you walk into a party and you meet somebody with no agenda, the dynamic is very different. It's much easier and it's much more friendly. So in those two situations, we've got a problem because if the dynamic is slightly combative or slightly edgy, if it's clearly a professional conversation, and if the dynamic is much more friendly and relaxed, if it's a personal relationship or a personal conversation, A, how do we make the professional become less combative so that it becomes more interesting for both people? And B, how do we move a personal friendly relationship into a sales conversation or a professional interchange without it becoming awkward? And that's why people don't like having sales conversations because they feel generally uncomfortable. And if they do have a friendly relationship with somebody, they don't want to introduce the prospect of there being an exchange of money because money is dirtier than kind words. So this is the big problem. The big problem is slipping easily into sales conversations. It's slipping easily into talking about money. It's going from talking about nonsense to comfortably and effortlessly talking about doing a deal or making a purchase or selling somebody something. And they're afraid the reason, you know, one of the reasons that we don't like to make that change, make that segue into the conversation about selling is because we don't want to be seen as a salesperson. It's because we're afraid we're going to offend the other person. Did you tell them that they should buy something? No, because we were getting on really well. Maybe this person will come to me when they want something. A lot of us think that if we just show up, eventually we can take an order. Order takers work in supermarkets, order takers work in bars, you know, order takers work in places where the consumer walks in, determined to make a purchase. The purchase process is incredibly easy. The goods are literally on the shelf and they take it to the order taker. And that's why there's a big difference in pay between a professional salesperson and a professional order taker, because making a sale is more difficult. So when the salesperson says, well, I hope this person will come to me and I can take the order. They're kidding themselves. They really are. The reason they don't ask for the order normally is because they don't want to make the other person feel offended. We're getting on so well up until now that I don't want to ruin it by moving too soon. I don't want to try to close the deal too soon. And that's nonsense. I mean, Katrina, when was the last time that you were offended when somebody asked you to buy something? Never right? Never. We get offended sometimes if 
somebody completely misjudges the kind of conversation that we're having and all they want to do is sell and we're not interested, then we might get a bit annoyed. But we only really get annoyed if they persist in that after they've been corrected. So, hi, my name's Matthew. I'm selling clipboards today. Would you like to buy a clipboard? No, thank you. I'm not really in the market for it, but thanks for your offer. Okay, very good. But here's 10 reasons why you should buy a clipboard. Well, thank you for giving me the 10 reasons. But like I said, I'm really not interested. And let me tell you something else. If you buy five clipboards off me today, then I'll throw in, listen, I've had enough. Leave me alone. If somebody doesn't get the message, if they're lacking the emotional intelligence to not listen to what the prospect is saying, then they will get offended. But more often than not, we can bring up in a friendly, relaxed and normal manner a way of finding out whether they want to become a customer of ours or whether we should pursue that opportunity just by asking them. And I think that's why uh, leaders and salespeople alike don't frequently get into more sales opportunities or at least more easy sales opportunities. Well, you're really changing a mindset, you know, of that money's dirty. I don't want to offend my my friend by sales. It's a mindset to, that uh, sales is negative. Here's the thing. Many people... You know, let's say that your job is a purchasing officer or, or a salesperson. You're sitting on one side or, a, or the other side of the table. And your job is to meet people all day long. You don't remember those meetings. You might have five meetings in one day. You get home. And by the time you wake up the next morning, you will not remember the face, the name or the, of the people you met or, or, or what you spoke about, unless it was exceptional. And I think that's a great shame. You know, I think that's wrong. I think we should approach these opportunities to meet people who may or may not buy from us as an opportunity to sell to them or to somebody else with joy and gusto and confidence and without any theatrics, without any blinking PowerPoint presentations, which is the fastest way to send a prospect to sleep, especially if you print it out and put it on their desk and give them a 25-minute potted history of the company. Nobody wants that. I talk about connecting on a human level and then looking them square in the eye and saying, listen, I believe that I could probably help you. And I would like to work with your company because you seem cool. How can we make that happen? And that's it. That's the way you introduce the prospect of working together. You say, I'm keen. I think you'd be a good prospect. Tell me what we need to do to make that happen. And hopefully by then you've made a friend, you'll be memorable. And, you know, there are some strategies and tactics that you can use to make yourself even more memorable after the act. Very interesting. And what's the greatest hurdle working with leaders? What's the greatest hurdle to make them change? Uh, is it the mindset? Is it something else? You know, if we consider leaders to be, you know, the people at the top of their organizations, I actually, you know, strong, as I think most corporate sales trainers will say, I strongly prefer working with those people rather than perhaps mid-level management. You know, and, and there's, there's no disrespect to either. It's just a pure personal preference. Now, why is that, though? Explain, Matthew. I find that when I'm making a sale and what I'm selling is meta, you know, I am selling sales training. But it doesn't matter whether I'm selling sales training or recruitment that I've done in the past or other corporate services which I've done in the past. It doesn't matter. I find that those who have the greatest sense of personal responsibility are the ones that I enjoy working with most. And in a corporate structure, it's very difficult for anybody other than the people at the very top to make rapid decisions. Yes, exactly. That's the decision. Because it's, a, it's about decision. You know, um, the, the typically, C-level executives are 
bigger risk takers. They understand where the buck stops. They will take personal responsibility and they're very rapid decision makers. In fact, most of their job is managing relationships and making decisions all day long. That's it. You know, that's what they have to do. They don't have to fill in spreadsheets. They don't have to do anything other than build relationships and make decisions. They also, you know, they, they understand that time is a very valuable asset. Sitting down to talk to human resources managers can often, to me, feel like, again, no disrespect to all of the human resources managers I've met in my career, but there's a lot of self-importance there. There's a lot of, you know, I'm uh, somebody who exercises control over the way things are done here. Anything that happens in this organization must go through human resources, whether it's putting up a sign in the bathroom or whether it's firing somebody or hiring somebody or training somebody or deciding on somebody's lunch break or deciding on their way day, there is nothing, or, or the new furniture, there's nothing that happens in the office that doesn't involve the input of human resources. And what do they also do? They set processes and procedures for the organization to follow. And if you go in there as a salesperson trying to sell to a human resources manager or, or a mid-level manager and you say, this is the way we do things, they will say, well, that's not the way that we do things around here. And I find that frustrating. If you go to a C-level executive and you say, listen, I've got a solution that will save you time. I don't need your input on it. I just need your green light. What do you say? Shall we go? They will say, yep, it's in your hands. They're also very good at delegating responsibility. And I'm happy to take responsibility when I go in. Especially, again, as a sales trainer, you know, I don't want interference. I don't want interference. It's difficult to teach somebody to drive a car if there's a backseat driver, if their mother is sitting in the back of the car giving them contradictory instructions or giving opinions that don't necessarily gel with your idea. So I guess I'm a control freak, Katrina, in short. Not really. I like to deal with people who give me the control. <laughs> yeah, I can understand that. But because you're a professional and you know your job and you have sales and you know what to do. But on the other hand, you see an, an executive or a CEO, he does sales and persuasions all the time. So understand that that's a key skill. Human resource, I don't think they see it that way. I'll give you another example. I coach executives uh, in transitions that go abroad or they're expatriates. Mm -hmm. Well, all the problems you have with expatriates is very hard to explain to human resource people because only 17%, and I'm in an international, I work with international organizations, only 17% of HR have had an experience abroad. You see what I mean? So it's not in their, usually, their makeup. Listen, HR are absolutely fundamental to the running of any organization because they're the conduit through which decision flows. But I've seen so many times, really, I've dealt with hundreds, if not thousands of human resource professionals in my life as both a sales trainer and a recruitment. I used to own a recruitment company in Belgium. So I'd be on the phone almost all day long to human resource people. I often see a bottleneck where human resources role is seen to give the stamp of approval rather than to smooth the way for things to happen. And that can be an issue. But, you know, I think it's absolutely critical. I wouldn't want a, uh, an organization of a certain size without somebody looking out for the processes and well-being of the, of the organization. But I think if you're a salesperson, it's a mistake to not go as high as you possibly can in the organization when you are, and this is sales training 101. There isn't a sales trainer out there who won't tell you this. You pitch the CEO if you possibly can. If you are trying to sell something into an organization, you go to the very, very top because the worst that can happen is they say no, and you're going to get that at the bottom. The best that they can happen is they can make a decision there and then without having to consult anybody else. 
which is rare in other parts of the organization. And what's most likely to happen is that they're going to refer you down. And when they refer you down to perhaps human resources or anybody in between, you then have a direct warm, not even referral, but instruction from the CEO's office that you must entertain this guy because he wants to talk to you. Yes, no, I understand that perfectly. So tell us, Matthew, you say on your website, it's my mission in life to help you fall in love with sailing. That's pretty strong. Can you comment on that? It's a game, Katrina. If we're not making enough sales in our lives, it's a first world problem. I mean, it really is. I don't believe there's anybody listening to this podcast that is not employable, either as a salesman or somebody else. You know, perhaps you're not cut out for selling. Perhaps you want to be cut out for selling, in which case you can try. Perhaps you don't want to sell, in which case don't do it. You know, it's Daniel Pink in his book, uh, To Sell as Human, says all of us sell all the time, you know, whether we're persuading our kids to go to bed or whether we're persuading somebody to lend us their lawnmower. We are, you know, any act of persuasion or trying to get our way is an act of sales. And I, and I agree with that. But it's a game. It's a game. And life is a game and life is short and we shouldn't take it too seriously. And if you can't say, no, it doesn't become fun if your well-being and the well-being of your family depends upon you making this sale, then it's not fun. So what's the solution to that? The solution is to get better at selling and then it becomes fun or go and do something else for a living. But I think if you can sell, then you can be free because you can be fired from your job. You can be redeployed. You could be unemployed and you can go and buy a bundle of pencils in a wholesale store for a dollar a pop and resell them for two dollars. Or you can go to China and you can buy a uh, shipping container full of plastic ducks or rubber ducks for 20 cents a pop and sell them for a dollar. And you can, if you can sell, you will never go hungry. And that is a beautiful luxury for many people. And if we assume, therefore, that the salesperson will never go hungry, providing they do the work, then don't we have a duty and a responsibility to ourselves, to our mental health, to our family's mental health to enjoy it? Everything's a game. There is nothing bad that will happen if this person doesn't say yes, uh, which is going to happen most of the time. And if it's got to the stage where something bad will happen, like you'll fall behind on your mortgage payments, it's still not the end of the world because you can go and do something else. So tell us, Matthew, what's the difference or how do you qualify the difference between persuading someone and selling to someone? I don't. I don't think there's a difference. Okay. I don't. I think, I think persuasion has... You know, as a word, when I hear the word persuasion, I hear something slightly more proactive. People will buy things without being persuaded to buy it. You can sell somebody something without persuading them to do it. I suppose persuasion, certainly the way I use it when I talk about the principles of professional persuasion, it's about being conscious and aware of the individual activities that you're doing that are going to make people more likely to do what you want them to do. And it can be very small. And, you know, Cialdini, the godfather of uh, influence and persuasion, has identified six of the most important principles of influence or, or pillars of influence. I, I forget what he calls them. And, and, and these are true. But if you're aware of these things, then I think you can be a, an active persuader. If you're not aware of the difference that you can make in the sales process, perhaps you'll just be a salesman. So how important do you think it, it is for a leader to be a good salesman? 
Oh, it's critical. It's critical. A leader has to make decisions, network and manage relationships and get people on board, you know, get people to say yes. And he's not managing those relationships for fun. He's managing them for profit. And he's getting various parties to fall into agreement with a common vision or, or into agreement with a common vision that he wants everybody to have. So whether that's a vision for where the new office location is going to be or where they're going to do their annual retreat or whether they're going to be sold to a preferred buyer or whether they're going to buy another company, his or her entire life is getting people on board. And I don't think there's a leader who would disagree with that. Okay, thank you. Now, just tell us a little bit about your book, How to Get a Grip. Can you just give us some key messages from that book? Absolutely. How to Get a Grip is a self-help book. I wrote it seven or eight years ago now, and I wrote it because I needed it. I was running a recruitment company. I was doing the wrong job. Turns out that I'm not uh, the most comfortable manager in the world, and I'm happiest when I'm on the road and selling and not in an office with responsibilities like employees and uh, staff and bookkeeping and juggling enormous amounts of credit on short-term bases in order to uh, you know, make sure our contractors were paid and we stayed afloat. And I was getting very stressed and I decided to write myself some advice. And that advice was how to get a grip. And it included advice such as go to bed an hour earlier, get up in the morning, set an alarm clock. It included the principal message though, Katrina, that you need to take yourself less seriously. The minute you start to take yourself too seriously is the minute things start, that don't matter, things that needn't matter start to matter. The next important message is you've got to take responsibility for yourself. The minute you realize that this sounds a bit woo-woo now, and I certainly, when I wrote the book, which by the way is very profane, if you're offended by bad language, don't buy How to Get a Grip. I was an angry young man when I wrote it, and it's full of F-bombs and truth bombs. Hmm. And yeah, so the second one is take responsibility for yourself. If you realize that change comes from within, uh, which sounds very Buddhist, then you realize that anything that you want to change can, or almost anything, I don't, I don't believe in absolutes, almost anything that you want to change can come from you. You might need help implementing that change. You might need medical help or professional help implementing some change. Um, but if you have a tendency to blame other people or circumstance or situation or the economy for the way that you are acting and the things that are happening to you, then we have a problem. You know, we, we can't control what happens to us to a certain degree, but we can always control how we react to it. Do you remember, um, Katrina, you and I, we both attended an event in the Philippines uh, just a couple of months ago, and one of the speakers was Hal Elrod. And one of Hal's movements, I'm still wearing the, the wristband today, actually, is can't change it. Can't change it. You know, he was in a horrific car accident. Uh, he, he broke his femur, amongst other things, suffered brain damage. Uh, and within a few days, he was smiling and laughing. And the doctors said to his parents, you know, I'm, we are concerned that he is in denial. And they asked him, they said, how what's the deal here? He said, look, I can't change it. What can I do? It's happened. Now I have to choose how I react to it. And so allow yourself to get angry. Allow yourself to get upset and then decide that's it. Five minutes is up. I've done it. There's no good that can come from being angry or upset. I'm going to take responsibility for what happens from now on. And I think that's a critical message. If I look around, you know, the people that I went to school with, junior school, particularly in the UK, you know, very different 
they're now living in a very different environment to me. And, and when I meet up with them and I have conversations with them, and I might mention, for example, I don't feel particularly comfortable talking about this. It sounds like gloating. It's not gloating at all. But they would say something like, wow, you have a great life. I see you've traveled to three different countries this month. I would love to be able to do something like that. You know, the answer is you can. You can. You absolutely can. You can. You can make those choices. You can make those things happen. But often it requires moving into a new normal. A new normal means if everybody around you is earning $20,000 a year, everybody you know in your neighborhood earns $20,000 a year, then $22,000 a year is, is going to be great for you or normal. Um, it doesn't have to be like that. If everybody around you is earning half a million a year, then that becomes your new normal and you aspire to it. You know, If your normal is that every night, because people around you, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night, you go to the bar, you drink 16 beers, and the next day is spent nursing a sore head and funny stories, and that's your normal, that's great if that's what everybody else is doing. But if you go and um, hang out with people who are doing something different, perhaps they're going sailing every weekend or mountaineering every weekend or skiing every weekend, then that becomes your new normal. So you don't have to put up. So I suppose it comes down to the, what's the prayer that the alcoholics use at their 12-step meetings? The prayer of serenity, is it? The grace to accept the things. Look, Matthew, I don't know. I'm not an alcoholic, unfortunately. Accept the things I can't change. No, you know this right, famous. Give me the grace to change the things that I can change, accept the things that I can't change, and the wisdom to know the difference, or something like that. Yeah, you know, which is There's good some things that we can't change, get over it, live with it. There's an awful lot that is within our power to change, and we have to confront those things head on, and we can do it. And listen, I'm learning. There's tons of stuff in my life that could still do well with changing, as there, I'm sure there is in yours, Katrina. There's everybody and anyone who said life is perfect is lying. Um, it's not perfect, but it's beautifully imperfect. But, you know, your message is very inspirational. Matthew, we're coming to the end of our podcast. Oh, that's a shame. Yes, to our episode. I've enjoyed listening to the sound of my own voice. Well, I've enjoyed listening to you, Matthew. So <laughs> it's a pity that it's coming to an end. But tell us where people can get a hold of you. You have to go to matthewkimberley.com, and I own most misspellings of that domain name, but it's Matthew with two T's and Kimberly, L-E-Y, at the end. So matthewkimberley.com. Give me your email address, and we can become pen pals. Wonderful, and I will have all this information on the show notes. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Katrina. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Excellent Executive Coaching Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program. You can subscribe to all future podcasts at excellentexecutivecoaching.com and sign up for monthly newsletters featuring all the latest tips and techniques to bring your coaching to the next level. Join us again soon. And until then, bye for now.